is Jonathan Zapp of Zapp Oracle and Reality Sandwich. And I'm here at the International Congress on Consciousness in Miami. And I am talking to Sandy Coy, um, who is an entomologist. And there's kind of a remarkable yes. chain of synchronicities I'm, I'm following here. Uh, I think it was a week or ten days ago I was watching Charlie Rose, and he had the um, famous historian on. I think his name is David McCullough. And apropos of nothing, um, when Charlie Rose was asking him about some of the most important events of his life, he said, I read a book about insects, and it just blew my mind. And then at the end of the whole interview, um, when Charlie Rose asked him what advice, because he, he, he must be in his 80s, you know, he has for young people, he said, like, read a book about insects. I mean, I was expecting it to be all about studying history. And, and so that just kind of stayed with me, and I decided um, just yesterday, hey, I, I better read a book about insects, except that, you know, most of my books I, I'm listening to on Audible, so I downloaded a book uh, that was on a lot of the lists of uh, the 10 best books about insects. And so then um, I just walked over during the lunch break to Whole Foods and sat took the, the first stool that was available in a very crowded Whole Foods, and it turned out to be another member of the same conference, uh, Sandy, and who, who quickly introduced herself as an entomologist, and so that, that kind of got my attention right away and, and she's kindly agreed to do a podcast about insects and so I want to start by, by confessing my, my prejudice um, against insects I'm sure this is a very common prejudice that you can disabuse me of uh, but I, I you know, wrote a rant about this as a th- Facebook status update a couple of years ago that you know about insects that had some kind of title like just because you're part of nature does not make you cool um, that insects seem very stereotyped and mechanical and annoying. They don't listen. They don't respect boundaries. Um, and uh, so on and so forth. They, they don't seem to have new material. They, they just seem to always be doing the same old, same old, golden oldie loops that they've been doing all along. But I want to give you this opportunity to tell us um, why we should think of insects as, as conscious, as I suspect they, they are, and um, what are some of the things that, that got you interested in insect consciousness and dramatic evidences of insect consciousness? That's a really tough question to answer. The first thing I'd like to say is insects are one of the oldest life forms on the planet. And they are, in fact, not just doing nothing. They are the foundation of life on this planet. Um, First foundation, of course, is uh, plants. Plants are very keenly associated with uh, insects. But what people don't realize is that insects are breaking down the nutrients in the soil, breaking down organic matter. They're making soil. They're fertilizing soil. They're aerating soil. They are cleaning the water. They're feeding the trophic levels that go up. So you have uh, little larvae in the, the water that are feeding the fish. The fish are feeding bigger fish. The bigger fish are feeding humans. And it goes the whole way. So they're associated with the water cycle, associated with the soil cycle, associated with air, everything. They are so key to the ecosystem coherence of the entire planet, so they're not just doing nothing. But well, nobody could, nobody can say that insects don't have a work ethic. Oh, they sure very, do. <laughs> very in, industrious creatures, and um, but we were we were just touching on this a little bit earlier. I mean, I'm very fascinated with the idea of hive consciousness. I know I heard E.O. Wilson, you know, his, um, 
book, that famous book, Insect Societies, say that, that you can see the dominance of social organism in that, that the largest percentage of the biomass of the planet would be social insects. And so um, what can you tell us about hive consciousness and, and how does that work with the individual? Does it seem like the individual are just sort of following out algorithms or commands or are they aware of, of, of why they're doing what they're doing? How, how intentionally purposive is it or does it, how much of what they do seems just automated? I think that they are conscious of what they're doing. Uh, as I had said at lunch, if you're building a huge termite colony and it has to have the proper air conditioning and it has to have proper passages and the queen has to be set up so that she's safe, the workers need to know where they're living, the soldiers need to know where, where's your nursery, the whole thing. So there is some kind of group consciousness going on. They can't it's like, can you build a building if none of your, if the guys that are putting in the floor, the guys that are doing the electrical, the guys that are doing the plumbing, if nobody knows what anybody else is doing? So there has to be some kind of group understanding. And having worked with uh, some of the social insects, in particular termites, uh, I believe that they also have, if you want to call it personalities, they seem to be aware of what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, we used to take uh, a colony of 100 termites and put them in an arena and just watch what they were doing, each individual marked so that we know exactly who's doing what. And it was always the same six individuals in a colony who were basically the, the lead workers. And um, termite colonies are trophallactic. That means they feed each other. So the workers are going to go back and feed the rest of the colony. And it's, it's amazing to me that the same six individuals are always the ones that are out there working. Now, whether they work until they die and then another six come along, you know, we never got past that, that, uh, that point, although I'm sure they have now. Um, but I think there is a, a group consciousness in those social beings. And as I said, if you lose a cell, your body doesn't stop functioning because you've lost one cell. So if you lose one worker out of your colony, because basically they've been worked to death, they work very hard, as you said. Uh, so that hive continues going on. So there has to be some kind of a matrix that holds that whole social context together in, in the hive or in the colony. So you, you've observed individual differences and in, in what you even called personalities uh, amongst insects of the same kind. But I, I guess what I've, I've always wondered is how much does each individual carry that group consciousness? You know, is it, is it more in the queen than in the worker? Is it, is it something that, um, that there's a, a kind of meta-consciousness that's aware of certain things, but the individual components carrying out? Like if we had a mainframe that were, that were sending out these drones, but the drones didn't have to know the big picture. They just had to follow their very specific limited instructions. Uh, you know, uh, do, do the individual components know that you know what's going on with the overall status of the hive or, or how do you think that works i think it depends on which social insects you're talking about with some of them it is age related so uh for instance when you're young and strong you might be given this assignment and that's that's what you do but then as you get older maybe you're not able to continue flying 50 meters to get honey you know uh, pollen or um, nectar in order to make honey. 
Uh, so maybe you get assigned to fan the colony to keep it cooled down. Maybe you get assigned to baby care. Maybe you go to the nursery. So I think some of it's age-related, depending on whether you are. Who's giving out those assignments? I think the colony itself is, is just, it's an understanding. It just okay. So in other words, um, <clears throat> that, that aged bee, um, th there isn't some sergeant or something that's telling, no. saying, that, okay, now you go here. We, we can see you're not strong enough. It, it just will decide for itself that I'm not going to be flying the 50 meters. I'm going to be one of the cooling bees or something like that. I, I think they all decide together. It's, it's, a, it's a holarchy. Okay. So the queen, now on the other hand, she is the uh, she is the uh, maternal the maternal entity. So she is the queen. She is the queen bee, literally. So she is the one that's determining uh, a lot of things that go on. Like, do we need to have more workers? Do we need to have more? Um, do we need to make drones because we're colonies getting too big and we're going to take off and we're going to start a new colony? And again, I think it depends on the species. Are they, are they ants? Are they bees? Are they termites? Are, are, what social insect are we talking about? Okay, well, when you, the, I guess with the example you were just mentioning with the queen, uh, you were talking about bees. So. I was. Okay, so let, let's, let's go with that um, just to, to ground it in, in, in one so it doesn't get so confusing. But So I guess you could say that the queen has more of the executive function um, in, in this group consciousness. Um, is that how you see it? And and how much does um, the ones who are not the queen, uh, the drones, the workers, whatever, uh, how much do they um, participate in that larger consciousness, um, or do you, do you see them as more like commanded by it, or are they just... Is there any way of distinguishing that or even intuitive sense? I personally can't answer to that, but what I do think is that... All right, we're back. So, uh, let's see, where were we? We were talking about um, the queen and how much the, the individuals um, possess the full picture. Because it seemed like... So, so it seems like there's a different scope of consciousness... Um, with the queen versus the individuals, or is it just that, that she is playing a role of being the one to make these executive choices? Um, but, but, but individuals who are lower on the hierarchy, um, would they also be aware of the big picture of what's going on in the hive, or just their little piece of it? I think it's a combination of both, really. Okay. But they have to know what's going on in the whole hive. Okay. They have to understand what's going on. Because if they don't, there's no, there's no coherence, and the hive would collapse. Now, one of the things that we think is happening with pesticides, for instance, in the bee colonies, is it is disorienting the bees and disconnecting them from that coherence in the hive. Okay, so this is the colony collapse disorder you're It's part about. of it, yes. It's, it's a synergetic thing between all the different things that are hurting the okay. bees. And do we have a sense? I mean, I know it's associated with nicotinoid. Neonicotinoid. Neonicotinoid. It's like with somebody's Insecticides. I mean, is there a specific type of neurological damage that does that would inhibit that function? Or do we know anything about why it would cause that breakdown of coherence? 
I can't answer as to what, why it causes that. I just know what the, the symptoms are. It okay. does mess them up in terms of being able to find their nectar, find their way back to the hive, okay. find their way to communicate with the hive where that honey or where that okay. resource is. Uh, because we know how to interpret their dances. We know how they are telling each other. We know that they learn and that they communicate with each other. And I think one of the things that the colony collapses uh, happens is that they lose the coherence of the whole uh, the entity of the of the of sure. the uh, entire colony and it, it disorients them in terms of being able to even function so it would be I guess in a sense kind of like one of your cells your liver cell just stops working and right. it just it just does, doesn't work anymore sure so uh, I think that's part of what's going on there's a coherence in these colonies that holds them all together. So the queen might be the the uh, the kingpin, if you want to call the queen the kingpin, but she's she's the uh, determinant. But everybody is on that in that matrix. Okay. So is there do, do they lose coherence um, if the, a, a particular colony has its queen killed, for example? Um, is that like cutting off the head or? Well, they'll become disoriented for a while, but they will know that now they have to, to make a new queen. And okay. they make a queen by feeding the babies, the pupa, uh, royal jelly. Right. So they, they will make a new queen. Okay. Um, so I, I guess a reductive scientist, and, and I, I am anti-reductive, but just so you can answer this challenge, um, might say, well... Simple algorithms can create very complex learning-looking uh, behaviors, and so if this is all just sort of hardwired in as a sort of a bunch of simple algorithms, and I recently read a book called Simple Rules that will goes into like what are the simple rules that allow all these butterflies to cluster together and so forth. So it makes it look very algorithmic, and of course there are very simple learning machines that don't have consciousness or real AI, but they can start to like get better at certain tasks by trial and error, and it just becomes sort of hardwired in there. Um, what, what, what is the case for it not being as automated as that and mechanistic? It's evolutionary for one thing. This is, are we the same? I mean, some, well, of course, some of them would say yes. I mean, I would <laughs> exactly. say no, of course. Um, but you know, it's, a, it's an evolutionary thing. So yes, if something becomes hardwired, and you had mentioned uh, Rupert Sheldrake earlier about morphic resonance, and I think that's a key part of insect evolution is they they are hardwired to do certain things, um, but so are we. So I think that. Uh, it's a definite uh, long-term thing. They're one of the oldest creatures on the planet. They've been here a very long time, much longer than we have. And I think people need to just remember that, that these insects are playing a very important role, I think, in the whole matrix of the planet, to be honest with you. Um, everything from the ants to the whales are part of the song the coherence of our entire planet. We've messed with things so badly that I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm worried about it, seriously. Right. Um, well... Colony um, collapse, you know? But, but um, you know, we, we may be the colony that collapses while so many inse insects, people always talk about cockroaches, <laughs> are, are more resilient than we are. Um, and 
besides the, the, the famous case of the, the, the moths in England that, that darken their wings to camouflage themselves and they evolve, go to trees, supposedly, did, yes. how well are, are, do we see signs of, of, of insects adapting to environmental toxins in, in novel or interesting ways? In some cases, yes. Some are, some are going extinct. Um, we do know that... Uh, there are many, many insects who have evolved to metabolize toxins just in the course of their lives. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are novel toxins that we've introduced to the environment. Uh, some of them have switched host plants. Uh, butterflies, for instance, a host plant is what the caterpillars eat. Uh, it's called a larval food. So some of them have switched plants. Uh, some animals are making adjustments, and, and they are doing. I mean, when you think about it, even cockroaches have made adjustments. They're not supposed to live in your house. Their job is to make soil, to break down organic matter, and turn the leaf litter in the forest into dirt. But now they're in your house, you know, because we we're feeding them and we paved over their home, so they're moved in. Um, but we, uh, I think we all are coming to a point where we have got to make some serious decisions about what we're doing because we've, lo- we've lost a tremendous amount of species, you know that. Of course, sure. So, uh, you know, whether or not, I think insects will survive much better than we will. Right, right. Well, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm, a, I'm kind of on the pan-psychist side, so I think everything's imbued with consciousness. But I think we, for materialists, they look at you know the pinhead size insect brain and are like, well, there can't be much consciousness in there. But of course, if you're not a neurological materialist, and if you see uh, the brain as a transceiver, which people from way back William James yes, thought that way, course. increasingly that that perspective seems to be gaining empirical evidence, uh, then the, the complexity of what's going through a transceiver is not. Uh, Reducible to the, how many transistors are in the transceiver. <laughs> um, so, is there anything about um, the insect brain, however, from the neurological materialist point of view, the architecture of it, or anything that gives us an idea of um, what their consciousness is like? Like, how do they process, like, with a compound eye? Like, how do they process? Ah, okay, so that's a good place to start. Okay. Um, they, they are living on an entirely different matrix than we are. Okay. Some butterflies, for instance, are um, sensitive to broadband. Now, what are they picking up? We don't know, but they're sensitive to it. Their antennae pick it up when, when uh, they are uh, in, uh, when they respond to it. Uh, we know that they see UV. We know that they are sensitive to gamma rays. We know that they're sensitive to geomagnetic. Uh, how does a butterfly... And we have 38 species here in South Florida that migrate, not just the monarch. Uh, so people know the monarch, which I'm really glad that people are aware of that now. But we've got 38 species that migrate. How in the world is a little butterfly no bigger than your thumbnail making it from South Florida to Georgia? He's doing that somehow. Uh, so, yes, it's evolutionary and this is something that over millions of years has evolved. They're 140 million years old, so they've been around a very long time. Uh, but I do know that just like people, I've worked primarily with butterflies. Uh, there are butterflies that do seem to have, from our perspective, some kind of personality. 
we have, uh, for instance, butterflies that are, they seem to be, seem to be curious. So they'll come up and land on you. Who are you? What are you doing? You know, they'll, they'll even crawl around on your face. They'll crawl around on your clothes, just checking you out. Who are you? Uh, we have other butterflies that, uh, for instance, the minute you walk into their, their space, you know, when we're rearing them, they're flying to the other side of the cage. Get me out of here. I don't know who this is. It might be a predator. It might be something going to eat me. Uh, and the same is true if, if anybody uh, who has dealt with cockroaches, who has dealt with, uh, I would call them the higher insects. I'm not sure termites would respond the same way. Although we do know that termites, some of them seem to be more aggressive or outgrowing than others. So how do we measure personality in something that we don't even... We've just in the past, I'd say, 25 years, begun to even understand the physiology of these animals, which is just incredible. They're incredibly complex. How do you take something like a, a, a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly? And what goes on in the pupa is just mind-boggling. You've said a creepy-crawly thing on the ground that's turning into this beautiful flying object. All, all of the, they're called imaginal cells, are in the caterpillar, ready to turn into the butterfly. But these physiological changes and hormone changes have to take place in the pupa to make that happen. Well, what's also fascinating about that metamorphosis process, from the little I understand, is that the caterpillar cells... Um, will have an immunological reaction to the imaginal cells. It'll sort of resist its own metamorphosis until a certain critical point is yes. reached when the imaginal cells take over or something. Yeah. Um, it's a change in the juvenile growth hormones that takes place, and there is a, there is okay. a kickoff point. There is a point right. like a critical mass is reached, and it's like, okay, we're going. <laughs> and, and so I think that, that you know you may be dangerous to use that as an analog to human evolution, but we, we see something in biology that we also see with consciousness, both Freud and Jung talked about the essential conservative aspect of the psyche, and we, we when there is an evolutionary, and of course organisms tend toward homeostasis, they have a conservative bias to get this dialed in equilibrium, um, and we see this in, in cultures where it seems like, okay, you know, there's been an explosion in the rights of women, and so now highly patriarchal cultures, like we find <laughs> in, in a lot of fundamentalist Islamic regimes, seem to have been made much worse mm-hmm. um, and to be aggravated by this evolutionary, they're having an immunological reaction to certain themes of modernity. Right. So it, 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 it seems like there's an analogy. But related to what you were saying about, about the butterflies and, and the curiosity, um, I, I know I was... Uh, got a, a spark of, of recognition from something I once heard Alan Watts say where he said that when scientists look at nature and at insects and so forth, they're, they're basically like military men. And so they see everything in terms of engineering and defense and everything is seen as purposive and of course insects are no doubt a higher percentage of their behavior is mechanistically purposive as compared to children, let's say, but um, but maybe not all of it is. I mean, are, are there are there moments where it looks like, you know, the butterfly is doing something motivated by 
a curiosity that is not about you know the, the classic F's of fighting and food gathering and yeah, I would say so. I would say so, but you know, I can only speak to the butterflies that I have personally known. Okay. Um, so uh, there do seem to be differences. Now, I reared uh, one little species that was actually thought to be extinct here in South Florida, called an Atala butterfly, A-T-A-L-A, and uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful subtropical butterfly, and. It, we reared them by the thousands in order, nobody had ever done the biology, the ecological studies, nobody had ever done anything with behavior, personality, uh, personality. Uh, in other words, nobody had done anything in that realm. So actually, uh, for three years, I reared them and uh, by the thousands, literally, and a very huge cage so that they could pretty much be just what they are. They could, uh, they had free reign, they could mate as they chose, they had food, they had everything they needed. And what I did notice is that there were some, and they were all numbered, by the way, so I knew exactly who was doing what mm -hmm. all the time. And there were consistently some butterflies that were more outgoing than others that always came to, the minute they would see me come in with the nectar, They'd be all over me, like, you know, and then everybody else is like hanging off the ceiling and, and hanging out in the corner. But some of them were like, oh, here's the lady that gives us food. They recognize, and they would, they'd land on your head, they'd land on your clothes. Sometimes they'd land on the nectar bottle, like, hurry up and fill the feeder, I'm hungry. Right. You know? Um, and some of them were more successful at mating. Like I said, they were all numbered, so I could tell that this particular in, in individual was much more successful at getting mates than this individual. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were more prolific at laying eggs than others. So it was really an interesting uh, study, not all of which is published yet, but because uh, there was an awful lot of data. Uh, but I definitely saw personality differences. So I guess what a reductivist would say, I mean, you know, chimpanzees are, we now know, 98% genetically Similar identical to, to, yes. to us, <laughs> and, and yet when, you know, when Jane Goodall gave them names and stuff in her field notes, she was accused of anthropomorphizing. Now, of course, chimpanzees really are highly anthropomorphic, um, but when you're seeing these differences among insects, would say, well, you, you're anthropomorphized and you're seeing these variations, but maybe it's just sort of some bell-shaped curve where based on, you know, this, it's to their evolutionary advantage to have ones that are more aggressive and ones that are less aggressive and, and so forth based on, like, you know, uh, variations in hormones or something. Um, how much is... Um, are you able to find something that, that cannot be explained that way? I know Einstein once said, you know, they asked him, can you explain the whole universe mathematically? And he said, yeah, but it'd be like explaining a Beethoven symphony <laughs> right. the variations of air pressure. And of course, now we have neurological materialists who every day we found the brain structure that makes, or the neurotransmitter that makes you fall in love or the gene or whatever. 
and and I'm never convinced that they really uh, reduce some extremely complex phenomenon to one thing. Molecules of happiness right, right, canvas but canvas um, per But, you know, what, 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 are, what are some of the most convincing things? I know you talked about higher insects, like... I'd love to know which are the higher insects, and, and what are some of the more, more complex or purposive um, things you've observed. I know I, I heard recently that they, they were able to show that fruit flies make decisions because they, they, they were having them fly toward like two different portals or something, and then there'd be like a fraction of a section delay while they had to choose between them, to, suggesting that perhaps they even had a degree of free will. Um, <coughs> What, what, what are some of the, the, the behaviors that you've observed that seem most convincing, and, uh, and also what are those higher insects that seem like have the most consciousness? Well, the higher insects are, are the ones that are the actually the most recent butterflies, moths, um, as opposed to termite dragonflies. Absolutely. Uh, and they all have those decision-making abilities. As I said, if I go into the into the cage, this is a big walk-in cage, so they have lots of room to fly around, choose mates, get nectar, don't get nectar, come up and see me, stay away. Um, so they they have a, a, a capability to make decisions. They also have a capability to to teach each other. So I I could watch them. The ones that knew where the nectar was and the new neophytes, the ones that we just put in the cage, would be watching the, oh, that's where the food is. Okay, I got it. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you come into the lab in the morning and turn on the light to take them a couple of minutes to wake up, and the first thing they go, they go to the nectar feeders, which are like little itty-bitty butterfly or uh, uh, hummingbird feeders, but they're made for right. butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um so they, they are making those decisions. Um, wanted to say something about the dragonflies for a minute. We're going off on a, on a curve here. Um, but they are also migrators. They also migrate. There's one species of uh, dragonfly called a wandering glider, uh, Pantala flavescens is the Latin. It's a little golden yellow dragonfly that has a global population. They've done genetic studies with this, and we know that it's all one big giant global population, so they've taken samples from Japan, from China, from uh, Russia, from South America. It's all the same DNA. So, And they're, they're, they're called the wandering glider. They are a global population. But are they considered a social insect? I mean, you wouldn't call that a hive. No, it's just no they're, not they're, a so, they're not social insects. But they are uh, just amazing that they are global. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other butterfly or uh, dragonflies like the green darner that migrates with the birds and is actually one of the top predators of, believe it or not, hummingbirds. It's a very aggressive um Dragonfly, and dragonflies are one of our older insects. They're uh, very ancient. They have dragonfly fossils from this, the time of the dinosaurs that had 14-inch wingspan. Oh, wow! <laughs> so, 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 so dragonflies are not one of the newer ones. No. Even though they're one of the higher ones. Yeah, they're incredible. Okay. They're incredible. Um, well, look, going back to what you were saying about how, watching the butterflies learn from each other. Now, there's this famous hundred monkey idea. Now we know that now we know that the actual case, or at least I 
heard it pretty exhaustively debunked, I think, in Whole Earth Review, that the actual 100 monkey case turned out to be a hoax or something, or, 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 or not to be evident, evidential or something. But uh, but the underlying idea, I think, and, and Rupert Sheldrake gives some, in some of his books evidence of this, that, that animals seem to be able to learn from some sort of field of consciousness and not necessarily through direct imitation. Um, have you seen evidence of that, or cases of where insects seem to have like a cultural awareness of some new adaptation or something where it doesn't have to be transmitted through observation or pheromones or something? Well, the only thing I can attest to is the ones in my lab. Okay. So this is a new experience, but the, the ones in my lab never had an outdoor experience except for the ones that I collected from the wild to start my colony. Right. So uh, in that case, uh, they are learning and they are learning from each other. Uh, now, if I took those same animals out of the cage, which I did not do, right. but if I were to do that and put them back in the wild, I'm sure that they would know to go to flowers instead of nectar feeders. Mm-hmm. You know, right. they, they would know how to do that. Uh, and I wouldn't have to teach them how to find right. a flower. Well, I guess the interesting experiment, I don't know if anybody's done this, would be if you have artificial nectar feeders of a very particular kind and you have a whole cage of monarch butterflies that may not become accustomed to feeding on, on, on those. And then if you had like some control group that, that are just brought in to the next room that where they can't observe those um, and are introduced to these nectar feeders, will, will, will they learn to find them faster than the original group when they were first introduced to them and, and there wasn't a cultural memory or you know, <laughs> field or anything. Has anybody done any experiments like that to see if there's some sort of telepathic network? Not with the butterflies that I know of, but that sounds like something that uh, another social insect experimenter may have tried. Right, because something I'm, I've always been interested in is just like this precise synchronization, like with flocks of birds and schools yeah. of fish. And I know, I know that there are like mechanistic ways of explaining how communication happens, and no doubt there are mechanistic modes of communication, like dancing and pheromones and, and, and so forth. But are there other types of communication where no causal, traditional causal mechanistic? Uh, mode of communication is discovered and where it, it looks like there might be some sort of just telepathic awareness or group awareness. I would say there probably is. I mean, if you look at a school of fish, if you look at birds, especially migrating birds, because the lead bird somehow, how is that bird chosen? And when that bird gets tired, he just backs off and somebody else takes his place. I mean, before they leave, do they sit around and say, okay, I'm number one, you're two, you're three, you're four? Right. How do they know how to do that? But they do. So there, to me, that tells me that there's some kind of group consciousness and some kind of awareness going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so... Um, Relationships. You know, we talk about social insects, but we're, but do we do we see um, pair bonding mates where, where you know, uh, just like birds may mate for life? Do we see anything analogous to that with insects, or that they have a preference for they have friends? Do we, do we ever see any sort of social behavior that is not so highly purposive, but that seems like it's serving some other kind of purpose like that? 
to my knowledge, no insect is uh, going to mate for life. In fact, they're probably more, uh, what's the word I want? Promiscuous. Promiscuous than others. And as far as do they have friends, I have to say in in the lab I've seen the same guys hang out together. Now whether they're actually friends and and they're like, okay, after we do this, let's go have a, you know, let's go have a sip of the nectar. Um, That I can't answer. You know, right, yeah, I, I mean, because you wonder, do, do ones that are more genetically similar hang out? Like, I have uh, tropical fish in my house, and even if there's only two of a kind, they will school together. Mm-hmm. And no doubt there are good survival reasons for that or whatever, but, but it, it, it seems to run across a great many fish. So I wonder if um, pairings are based on something that can be explained that way or... So um, another another thing about insect consciousness is it seems that they live on a different time scale than we do. Just like when I would started to observe squirrels on my deck and I started to see how much more intelligent they were, but that maybe I didn't ordinarily perceive that because when when a creature runs at a faster tempo, it makes them look like a silent movie. It makes them look more mechanical. But if you slow it down. it, it looks quite different. There was a French film called Microcosmos that I think showed some time-slowed images of insects that made them seem more chill and more, you know, taking it all in and, and this sort of thing, though, that, that could be just all anthropomorphic illusions. But um, what kind of, is it anything you say about the time scale in which insects live? Is a day like a, an epic amount of time for them, or are they process faster? I think that depends on the species you're talking about. Uh, A monarch butterfly, for instance, lives about a year. A lot of uh, butterflies live a few days, a week. Some of them live several months. Uh, Some of the... um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, the ones that live a really long time. I guess something like cicadas that have like a long Yeah, they have a really long life cycle. So, or think about a tree, you know? A tree responds to things that we don't even realize everything that they respond to, but they're on a much, much slower time frame. So insects are on a completely different matrix. And one of the things that I wanted to mention, you had talked about the eyes and compound eyes. And I always say, now you have two eyes. Do you see two of everything? Technically, right. you do, but your brain puts it, it together. Puts it together. So these are like maybe pixels that assemble, you know. Right. One so they have you know. a they have a much wider perspective on things than we do. Right. And In they terms are of field of view. Field of view, and they so are the also tuned into particular right. frequencies. So they're seeing the plant frequencies, and they're seeing UV. They're seeing things that we aren't even conscious of. Uh, and there is a difference, believe it or not, at least with butterflies, between how the males are seeing and how the females are seeing. And that's one of the classic jokes. Males and females see differently. Yes, they do. So the females are generally looking for host plants for the caterpillars to lay their eggs. The males are looking for females. So they're looking for completely different things. But you can see that in their eyes. In fact, we're working on a paper right now about that. Uh, but... Uh, they are on a completely different time frame, completely different chemical awareness. 
we're being bombarded with all kinds of stuff that we're not even conscious of. Right. Well, you know, I did have a moment of what seemed like a, a visionary uh, intuition about the, the, or a case of seeing something happening with a plant on a different time scale. And I was down in Bisbee, Arizona, and there were all these agave plants, and that they apparently have a life cycle where every 13 years they send out this one blossom. And I was just looking at it, it's beautiful. And then it dies. And so I was looking at this stalk that's coming up with this beautiful pink and purple flower. I forget what colors it was. And, and I suddenly realized that this, this looks like um, the soul leaving the body of death. It's like here's the silver cord, and now here's the spirit body, and it's sending its pollen out. It's sending its spirit <laughs> out, and then it will die when, when it, once it does that. And so uh, it, it's... A lot of uh, why we may be prejudiced against certain life forms or not see as much consciousness in them is it may be much harder to recognize consciousness that's happening at a radically different time scale than our time scale. That's a good observation. I like it. Um, one of the uh, one of our philosophers, Maimonides, 11th century rabbi and physician, said there is nothing in nature that is without purpose, meaning, or uh, purpose, meaning, or... Anyway, I'll have to find it. But the, okay. but the yeah, whole thing, there's nothing in nature that is meaningless right. without purpose. Every single thing has some purpose and some activity, and that's what we were talking about, right. the, the whole I, coherence I, I, of the planet. I have trouble seeing that sometimes for, say, bed bugs, spirochetes, and stuff they like that. They obviously have a purpose. They evolved. Right. And maybe it's the bed that wasn't well, here I mean, and, <laughs> a thousand years and ago. And I am interested in parasites. I mean, there is this thing called the Red Queen Hypothesis, you've probably heard of, that yeah. says that, you know, uh, sexual differentiation may, may have been an adaptation to, to, to parasites. And so um, from a sufficiently large vantage, um, even the most annoying parasites could be revealed to be evolutionary symbionts and creating right. an antagonistic force that spurs on um, evolution. So we covered compound vision. Um, so I know that, that uh, spiders are not insects, but are arachnoids, but, but, but they do seem like they have a lot of, the, 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 in, in people's minds, including mine, they, they sort of seem like they're in the same category. Um, are, where, where are they in terms of higher and lower? Are they, are, are they um, you know, complex, more intelligent purposes and individual consciousness, or do you have any sense of what's going that's, on That's spiders? putting a value on, on right, one right, sure. or another. I think, first of all, it, uh, spiders are very, very old, but I'll tell you a story about spiders. Uh -huh. Look this up on the internet. Uh, this okay. Peacock spiders. Okay. And they do these beautiful little dances to impress the female, just like a peacock bird. Okay. They're just amazing. Wow. There's another species of spider in South America and Central America. I can't remember the scientist's name now, but the spider actually, he's a little spider. He builds a big spider in his net. He builds one with lichen and pieces of... Uh, like a scarecrow spider? Yeah. In uh -huh. his, in his, and has eight legs, just like a spider. He builds it, and he sits in the middle. Now, we don't know exactly what it is he's doing, but he builds a spider. So this is not an unintelligent animal. 
And you know, speaking of migration, it does, there's a certain amount of intelligence that has to take place for an animal to migrate thousands of miles. Right. And so nobody's ever going to convince me that insects are stupid. They may be smarter than we are in some ways. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they definitely have amazing survival skills that, that they've culled over so many more generations than we've been around. Um, that definitely has to be into. Okay, we're running out of time, but what, what are the, the questions about insects that you wish I would have asked, or what are some of the most interesting things about insect consciousness that you think people should know that we haven't covered? Well, the first thing I think is just that we have to remember that they're operating on a different scale than we are, whether it's uh, time, uh, energy, chemical awareness, everything. They're just in a completely different matrix. They may be a parallel universe, I don't know. Right. Um, but that they are doing something very, very important in holding the planet together in ways right. that we don't even sometimes know. But I'm right. reminded of E.O. Wilson... Somebody asking him, you know, many, many, many years ago, is, well, what good are ants anyway? And right. his, his reply was, what good are you? Right. And I think that's what we need to remember is we need to be putting back into the matrix instead of constantly taking out. So I think that's a good answer. Okay. Well, I think that's a good note to close on. Uh, thank you so much, Sandy, for talking to us about insects. Thank you for asking. And this is uh, Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com and Reality Sandwich signing off. Thank you for listening.